Episode 35. Throbbing clouds force their way from the west. Heat and humidity replaced by lightning knives cut through the sky. Thank you. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxet General. This steamy week, we are pleased to share with you a key lime pie martini and a lovely key lime pie. But first, we would like to thank our Patreon subscribers, like the amazing Lori. These master magicians infuse the Patuxa General with the mystic energy needed to run our works, without whom we would be merely a hunk of raw matter. If you would like to join these charmed folks, please look on our Patreon page or follow the link in the show notes. So thank you. But for right now, let's have a chat about yummy key lime pie martini. All right, friends, let's talk about a key lime pie for just a second before our cocktail. There's a bunch of controversy on where the key lime pie originated, but perhaps the Borden Dairy, founded in 1861 in Wasackett, New York, had derived a recipe for lime pie as a sales promotion, or the key lime pie could be based on a local Florida recipe that ended up in the Miami Herald Friday, August 25th, 1939. In that article, the recipe's author says there was an actual family recipe dating back to 1889. Nobody has come forth with a written copy from that time, but I will say that sweetened condensed milk did not exist until 1889. There is, however, a third local lime pie served at Max Place and printed in the Miami Herald, Saturday, October 3rd, 1936. I think that this may be the most correct of the key lime pie origins, as its ingredients are closest to several sailors' recipes to avoid scurvy. We do know that the Spanish introduced these fruits from Asia to Florida, and they differ from their Persian cousins, which are limes as we know it, by their size, tartness, and excess juice. Well, I guess they love the pie so much in the Keys they made up this drink, and this is my way. For this cocktail, you will need one and one half ounce coconut rum, one half ounce whipped cream vodka, one half ounce vanilla galliano, one half ounce key lime syrup, homemade is best, one ounce pineapple syrup, four key limes, zested and juiced, some honey, some crushed graham crackers, a large martini glass, and a shaker with ice. Dip the edge of your large martini glass into a saucer with some honey in it. Then roll through graham cracker crumbs to coat the rim of the glass. Set this to chill ahead of time in the fridge or freezer. About an hour, or not, if you are thirsty. Then put your ingredients into the shaker full of ice and shake until really cold. Strain into your fabulous glass and then garnish with a lime wheel. Gorgeous. So, I'm still hungry for key limes, so let's have some of key lime pie. I've tried to make this the best version ever, and here it is. For this recipe, you will need, for the crust, 24 squares of graham crackers, a 9-inch pie pan, 6 tablespoons melted butter, 3 tablespoons granulated sugar, 
For the filling, you will need 14 ounces of sweetened condensed milk, 4 egg yolks, 1 half cup key lime juice, and 1 tablespoon of zest. First, preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Either throw sugar, butter, and graham crackers into your food processor until it seems like it'll stick together. You could also crush the crackers in a plastic bag, then combine in a bowl. Either way, then dump into the 9-inch pie pan. I prefer glass. Use a 1-cup measuring cup to pat down the crust gently but firmly to cover the bottom and the sides by about 1 half to 3 quarters of an inch all around. Then pop them into an oven for 12 minutes. Usually you would let the crust cool off in between, but not in this case. So let's get right to the filling while the crust bakes. In a large bowl, beat the four egg yolks. You could either make a French meringue on top of the pie with them or save them for breakfast omelets. I prefer whipped cream for the top, but you choose. Add the sweetened condensed milk, zest, lime juice, and mix really well with a whisk. Then pour into your still warm crust. Turn the oven down to 325 degrees and then bake for 15 minutes. You'll know that it's done when it barely jiggles in the center. Cool for three hours or overnight, then decorate with whipped cream and key lime zest. There you have it. You have just won the pie competition. Enjoy! I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now, it's time for the finale of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft, a part of our ongoing The House on the Corner series. Chapter 6 Section 7 That Dr. Willette's purgation had been an ordeal almost as nerve-wracking in its way as the hideous wandering in the vanished crypt is shown by the fact that the elderly physician gave out completely as soon as he reached home for that evening. For three days he rested constantly in his room, though servants later muttered something about having heard him after midnight on Wednesday when the outer door softly opened and closed with phenomenal softness. Servants' imaginations fortunately are limited, else comment might have been excited by an item in Thursday's evening bulletin, which ran as follows. North End Ghouls, again active! After a full ten months since the dastardly vandalism in the weed and lot of the North Burial Ground, a nocturnal prowler was glimpsed early this morning in the same cemetery by Robert Hart, the night watchman. Happening to glance for a moment from his shelter at about 2 a.m., Hart observed the glow of a lantern or pocket torch not far from the northwest, and upon opening the door, detected the figure of a man with a trowel, very plainly silhouetted against a nearby electric light. At once, starting in pursuit, he saw the figure dot hurriedly towards the main entrance, gaining the street and losing himself among the shadows before approach or capture was possible. 
Like the first of the ghouls active during the past year, the intruder had done no real damage before detection. A vacant part of the ward lot showed signs of a little superficial digging, but nothing even nearly the size of the grave had been intended, and no previous grave had been disturbed. Hart, who could not describe the prowler except as a small man probably having a full beard, inclines to the view that all three digging incidents have a common source. But police from the second station think otherwise, on account of the savage nature of the second incident, where an ancient coffin was removed and its headstone violently shattered. The first of the incidents, in which it is thought an attempt to bury something was frustrated, occurred one year ago last March, and has been attributed to bootleggers seeking a cash. It is possible, says Sergeant Riley, that this third affair was of a similar nature. Officers at the second station are taking special pains to capture the gang of miscreants responsible for these repeated outages. All day Thursday, Dr. Willette rested, as if recuperating from something past or nerving himself for something to come. In the evening, he wrote a note to Mr. Ward, which was delivered the next morning and which caused the half-day's parent to ponder long and deeply. Mr. Ward had not been able to go down to business since the shock of Monday, with his baffling reports and sinister purgation. But he found something calming about the doctor's letter in spite of the despair it seemed to promise and the fresh mysteries it seemed to invoke. 10 Barnes Street, Providence, Rhode Island, April 12, 1928. Dear Theodore, I feel that I must say a word to you before doing what I am going to be doing tomorrow. It will conclude the terrible business that we have been going through. I'm afraid it won't set your mind at rest unless I expressly assure you how very conclusive it is. You have known me ever since you were a small boy, so I think you will not distrust me when I hint that some matters are best left undecided and unexplored. It is better that you attempt no more speculation as to Charles' case, and almost imperative that you tell his mother nothing more than she already suspects. When I call on you tomorrow, Charles will have escaped. That is all need remain in anyone's mind. He was mad, and he escaped. You can tell his mother gently and gradually about the mad part when you stop sending the typed notes in his name. I advise you to join her in Atlantic City and take a rest yourself. God knows you need one after this shock, as do I myself. I am going south for a while to calm down and brace up. So don't ask me any questions when I call. It may be that something will go wrong, and I'll tell you if it does. I don't think it will. There will be nothing more to worry about, for Charles will be very, very safe. He is now. Safer than you dream. You need hold no fears about Alan and who or what he is. He forms as much a part of the past as Joseph Kerwin's picture, and when I ring your doorbell, you may feel certain there is no such person. And what wrote that minuscule message will never trouble you or yours, but you must steel yourself to melancholy and prepare your wife to do the same. I must tell you frankly that Charles' escape will not mean his restoration to you. He has been afflicted with a peculiar disease, as you must realize from the subtle physical as well as mental changes in him, and you will not hope to see him again. Have only one consolation, that he was never a fiend, or even truly a madman, but only an eager, studious, and curious boy whose love of mystery and of the past was his undoing. He stumbled onto things no mortal ought ever know, and reached back through the years as no one should ever reach, and something came out of those years to engulf him. 
And now comes the time in which I must ask you to trust me most of all, for there will be indeed no uncertainty about Charles' fate. In about a year, say, you can, if you wish, devise a subtle account of the end, for the boy will be no more. You can put a stone up in your lot at the north burial ground exactly ten feet west of your father's facing the same way. Nor need you fear that it will mark any abnormality or changeling. The ashes in that grave will be those of your own unaltered bone and sinew, of the real Charles Dexter Ward, whose mind you watched from infancy. The real Charles, with the olive mark on his hip, and without the black witch mark on his chest, or the pit on his forehead. The Charles who never did actual evil, and who will have paid with his life for his squeamishness. That is all. Charles will have escaped, and a year from now you can put up the stone. Do not question me tomorrow, and believe that the honor of your ancient family remains untainted now, as it has been in all times in the past. With profoundest sympathy and exhortations in fortitude, calmness, and resignation, I am ever sincerely your friend, Marinus B. Willett. So on the morning of Friday, April 13th, 1928, Marinus Bickwell Willett visited the room of Charles Dexter Ward at Dr. Waite's private hospital on Connecticut Island. The youth, making no attempt to evade his caller, was in a sullen mood and seemed disinclined to open the conversation which Willett obviously desired. The doctor's discovery of the crypt and his monstrous experience therein had, of course, created a new source of embarrassment, so that both hesitated perceptibly after the interchange of a few strained formalities. Then a new element of constraint crept in, as Ward seemed to read behind the doctor's mask-like face a terrible purpose which had never been there before. The patient quailed conscious that since the last visit there had been a change whereby the solicitous family physician had given place to a ruthless and implacable avenger. Ward actually turned pale, and the doctor was first to speak. More, he said, has been found out, and I must warn you fairly that a reckoning is due. Digging again and coming upon more starving pets was the ironic reply. It was evident that the youth meant to show bravado to the last. No, Willette slowly rejoined. This time I did not have to dig. We have had men looking up Dr. Allen, and they found the false beard and spectacles in the bungalow. Excellent, commented the disquieted host in an effort to be wittily insulting. And I trust they prove more becoming than the beard and glasses you now have on. They would become you very well, came the even and studied response. As indeed they seem to have done. As Willette said this, it almost seemed as though a cloud passed over the sun, though there was no change in the shadows on the floor. Then Ward ventured, And is this what asks so hotly for a reckoning? Suppose a man does find it now and then useful to be twofold? No, said Willette gravely. Again, you are wrong. It is no business of mine if any man seeks duality provided he has the right to exist at all, and provided he does not destroy what called him out of the space. Ward now started violently. Well, sir, what have ye found, and what do you want with me? The doctor let a little time elapse before replying, as if choosing his words for an effective answer. I have found, he finally intoned, 
something in a cupboard behind an ancient overmantel where a picture once was, and I have burned it and burned the ashes where the grave of Charles Dexter Ward ought to be. The madman choked and sprang from the chair in which he had been sitting. Damn ye, who did you tell? And who'll believe it was he after these full two months with me alive? What do you mean to do? Willette, though a small man, actually took on a kind of judicial majesty as he calmed the patient with a gesture. I have told no one. This is no common case. It is a madness out of time and a horror from beyond the spheres which no police or lawyers or courts or alienists could ever fathom or grapple with. Thank God some chance has left inside me the spark of imagination that I might not go astray in thinking out this thing. You cannot deceive me, Joseph Kerwin, for I know that your accursed magic is true. I know how you wove that spell that brooded outside the years and fastened onto your double and descendant. I know how you drew him into the past and got him to raise you up from your detestable grave. I know how he kept you hidden in his laboratory while you studied modern things and roved abroad as a vampire by night, and how you later showed yourself in beard and glasses that no one might wonder at your godless likeness to him. I know that you resolved to do when he balked at your monstrous rifling of the world's tombs and at what you planned afterward, and I know how you did it. You left off your beard and glasses and fooled the guards around the house. They thought it was he who went in, and they thought that it was he who came out when you had strangled and hidden him. But you hadn't reckoned on the different contents of two minds. You're a fool, Kerwin. To fancy a mere visual identity would be enough. Why didn't you think of the speech and the voice and the handwriting? It hadn't worked, you see, after all. You know better than I who or what wrote that message in minuscules, but I will warn you, it was not written in vain. There are abominations and blasphemies which must be stamped out, and I believe that the writer of those words will attend to Orne and Hutchinson. One of those creatures wrote to you once, do not call up any that you cannot put down. You were undone once before, perhaps in that very way, and it may be that your own evil magic will undo you again. Kerwin, a man can't tamper with nature beyond certain limits, and every horror you have woven up will rise up to wipe you out. But here, the doctor was cut short by a convulsive cry from the creature before him, hopeless at bay, weaponless, and knowing that any show of physical violence would bring a score of attendants to the doctor's rescue. Joseph Kerwin had recourse to this one ancient ally and began a series of cabalistic motions with his forefingers and his deep hollow voice now concealed by feigned hoarseness bellowed out from the open words a terrible formula. But Willette was too quick for him. Even as the dogs in the yard outside began to howl and even as the chill wind sprang up suddenly up from the bay, the doctor commenced the solemn and measured intonation of that which he had been meant all along to recite. An eye for an eye, magic for magic. Let the outcome show how well the lesson of the abyss had been learned. So in a clear voice, Marinus Bickwell Willette began the second of that pair of formulae, whose first had raised the writer of those minuscules, the cryptic invocation whose heading was the dragon's tail, sign of the descending node. At 
At the very first word from Ouellette's mouth, the previously commenced formula out of the patient stopped short, unable to speak. The monster made wild motions with his arms until they too were arrested. And when the awful name of Yogg-Saloth was uttered, the hideous change began. It was not merely a dissolution, but rather a transformation, a recapitulation. And Willette shut his eyes, lest he faint before the rest of the incantation could be pronounced. But he did not faint, and that man of unholy centuries and forbidden secrets never troubled the world again. The madness out of time had subsided, and the case of Charles Dexter Ward was closed. Opening his eyes before staggering out of that room of horror, Dr. Willette saw that what he had kept in his memory had not been amiss. There had, as he had predicted, been no need for acids. For like his accursed picture the year before, Joseph Kerwin now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine bluish-gray dust. joining us this week at the PG. Next week, we'll be returning to our ghost story portion of our House in the Corner series. If you would like to reach out with your own ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. We would love to hear it and tell it. Also, join us at Tag Sale Treasures on Saturday mornings from 10 to 1 for our pop-up general store. Bring your questions, because I'll be there. And until then, I'll meet you right back here at the Patuxet General. Something for Posterity Production, pre-recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>